Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We're so small, I'm going to come down here. <laughs> All right, good morning, church. Today's reading is from John 1, verses 35 through 51. So Jesus calls the first disciples. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him on that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me, Jesus? Excuse me, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see things greater than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. Uh, my name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm uh, going to go off script for a second, Chelsea. I was giddy this morning uh, to be here. I absolutely love New Year's Eve, and I've been even more excited because I'm having a small shindig tonight. And friends, I could not sleep. I woke up at 3.45. I have been flying on adrenaline since. I love New Year's Eve, and so it really is a joy uh, to be spending just a few moments together on this, the last day of 2017 uh, together. I've loved New Year's for many years. I think I fell in love with the holiday uh, when I worked at Campus Crusade, uh, kind of producing the Midwest's biggest college New Year's Eve party, that's how we build it, at the JW Marriott uh, with Campus Crusade. So year after year, we'd have this great conference. Uh, students would hear from kind of speakers all throughout the week leading up to New Year's, and then the massive New Year's Eve party with, you know, CO2 cannons and lasers and all the fog machines, so really all the best things in life. Uh, and I guess you could say that I love New Year's because of the excitement I love it because of the anticipation. I love it because of uh, all the pizzazz that it can bring. But I also love it because it reminds us uh, that there's always an opportunity to begin again. Right? There's always an opportunity to, to start over, to make a change that we know we've needed to make. There's really nothing magical about December 31st. Uh, it's a day like any other day. But somehow, 
Something about it reminds us that the future doesn't have to be like the present, um, that things can change, that our lives can take on different rhythms and patterns. And so many times this kind of final week of the year, it kind of seems like the season of new beginnings, right? And so in this special moment is kind of one year comes to a close and another gets ready to begin, many people find themselves looking for advice on how to change, right? How to change. And we find ourselves looking to maybe gurus or experts or heroes that'll take us where we want to go in the new year. And it really doesn't take long to discover if maybe you get on Amazon or get on Google to see that there are so many different experts that are willing to kind of peddle their books, market their wares, and suggest, hey, this is the avenue to real change. This will take you where you want to go in the new year. And so I think a question that, that floats around this time of year is, how do you decide who to follow? Uh, how do you decide who to follow? Who's going to take me on the path? Who has the method that will lead to lasting change? And so maybe, for example, people are looking at budgets this next year and they're trying to say, hey, is it going to be, you know, Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman? You know, who am I going to follow? Or I need to get in shape. Is it going to be, you know, Jillian Michaels or Sean T? Or I have maybe a deep question in life. Is it Oprah or Dr. Phil? Um, and honestly, maybe this last one's obvious. It's Oprah, duh. Uh, but still, it's usually tough, right? In a world of competing voices, in a world of multiple gurus, in a world where there are many sources of wisdom and many people peddling their experience, uh, the question remains, how should we decide who to follow? And I'm convinced that this isn't a question that just pops up on New Year's Eve. I think this is a question many humans find themselves pondering uh, frequently. How should I decide who to follow? And I want to argue it's a question that's lurking in the minds of the principal figures in this morning's text. It's a question that the passage of Scripture we're about to study together seeks to answer. You see, this morning we're going to conclude our Advent series entitled That You May Believe. We're going to wrap up this month-long study in John's Gospel. And as we conclude, I think we're going to see why John thinks Jesus is someone worth following. Why John believes that Jesus is a king worthy of our allegiance. And so just to recap where we've been, for the past four Sundays, we've been identifying together key images that John used to describe and introduce Jesus. We started by listening to John tell us that Jesus is the word, the reason, or the logic behind the universe. We saw later that Jesus was the light who illuminates all things, who brings beauty and truth like no one else can. We saw a few weeks ago that John says that Jesus was the flesh who entered space and time to live among us and dwell with his people. And then and last Sunday, Gabe told us how Jesus was the lamb, right? The lamb slain, the sacrifice for all creation. That's where we've been thus far. And this morning, we're exploring this image that John paints of Jesus as a king, as a king. And so today, as we resume our study in John chapter 1, verse 35, we're going to outline, uh, we're going to watch as John outlines how Jesus attracted his first followers and how they came to see him as a king, as someone worth following. So I'm ready to engage this narrative, uh, and if you want to join me there, we're going to be in John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. It's on page 886 of our community Bibles, John 1, verse 35, and the text says this. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked as Jesus walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
So let's get our bearings here. Let's remind ourselves where we are in the story. John the Apostle, who wrote this book, is writing, and he's here specifically, he's speaking about John the Baptist, right? This is a different character. John the Baptist was one of the most intriguing people in the ancient world. He was this really radical prophet that drew a large crowd. People were fascinated to hear what he had to say. And here John the Baptist is saying something he said about Jesus before. He's saying, look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, that's what we studied last week, that John when he first noticed Jesus, said, hey, there's something special about this guy. He's, he's the Lamb of God, the sacrifice who's going to take away the sin of the world. Well, now John sees Jesus again. And once more, he declares, behold, the Lamb of God. And the text says that two of John's disciples, so two people who are following John the Baptist, two people who said, hey, John the Baptist, he's got the secret. He's worth following. He knows what life is all about. This fascinating prophet, this is someone I want to attach to and learn from. This is someone who I really want to shape my life. Two of John the Baptist's disciples hear John's exclamation, and they take his words to heart. And I imagine that maybe they like look each other in the eye and the text says, and then then they heard him, John, say this, and they followed Jesus. So John the Baptist, once more, he identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, the one who would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And two of his disciples, two of his followers, those that he had apprenticed to himself, they leave him to follow Jesus. I find that remarkable. I think it's remarkable on multiple counts. I think it's fascinating that John's disciples would choose to leave their master and follow Jesus. And I think it's fascinating that John the Baptist would have such great humility so as not to prevent his disciples from leaving him. You know, John knew that he wasn't the one who ultimately needed to be followed. He knew he wasn't a person that was worth giving everything for, worth sacrificing everything to follow. And so he was willing, I think, here to sacrifice some of his celebrity, some of his clout, some of his entourage, willing to say adieu to some members of his crew because he recognized that Jesus was someone special, that Jesus was someone more worthy of them to follow. I think that's so remarkable, isn't it? I mean, may we, like John, inspire other people to follow Jesus. I love that. And so John the Baptist, he identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, and his two followers decide to follow him. And this brings us to verse 38, where the text continues. So they're following Jesus, and then Jesus, in verse 38, he turns, and he saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Now, this is significant because up until this point in John's gospel, we haven't heard a word from Jesus. John's had a lot to say about Jesus. Uh, He's written, again, wonderful things. We've had four weeks worth of sermons on all that John has said about Jesus up until this point. But this is the first time that Jesus speaks. And what does he say? What comes out of Jesus's mouth here is he's given kind of a voice for the first time in this narrative. Uh, what does Jesus, Jesus ask? What has he delivered? He asks a question. He asks this like deeply personal question, this soul-penetrating question. It's a question of motivation and desire. Jesus asked these two men that have just left their master, he says, what are you seeking? What is it that you want? What are you hoping to find. 
Jesus' question here, it's pretty simple and straightforward. And on the one hand, it's a question posed at a historical moment to some very real historical people, right? I mean, this happened in space and time. In one hand, it's a, it's a historical question that takes place at a historical event. But on the other hand, I think it's a question Jesus still asks to each of us, to anyone who might be interested in following him. You know, what is it that you want? What are you seeking? What are you going after? Do you want to get well or to get rich or to have more opportunities or to have less on your plate? Do you want something new or do you want to get back to the way things were? You know, what is it that you want? Jesus asks this deep, penetrating question of these would-be disciples, and notice their answer. These new disciples, they don't reply with something kind of straightforward. They don't just immediately answer his question with like, oh, it's, you know, fame or something like this. They don't give a one-word response. Rather, they respond with a question of their own. So Jesus says, what are you seeking? And these disciples, in return, it says in verse 38, they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, they said, where are you staying? Now, this seems like an odd exchange, doesn't it, at first pass? It's like, hey, what do you want? Hey, what's your mailing address? You know, hey, what do you want? Where's your apartment number? You know, these two questions, they aren't usually paired in our time and culture. This line of inquiry, this kind of conversation here, it doesn't really make sense, but there is a certain logic to this unfolding conversation. There's something happening here that John wants us to see. Just to recap, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The two disciples leave. They turn. Jesus asks them a question. What is it that you want? And they ask a question in return. uh, Where are you staying? And when they ask, where are you staying? I think this is their subtle way of saying, Hey, you want to know what we want. We want to know how much access we'll have to you. Right? So Jesus asks them this question about their heart's motivation. What is it that you want? And I feel like in their head they're saying, you know, we can't quite put our finger on it, but we've heard from our leader that you have the secret to life. So you ask us, what do you want? We're asking you in return, hey, where are you staying? And can we come there too? It's kind of implicit in it. And how much access will we have to you? Will you give us a true inside look into your life and how you live it? Will you help us see how you work and think? We want to know if you're going to be open and honest with us, holding nothing back. What do we want? We don't even know what we want. We can't articulate that. But what we know we want now is access to you. We want to be invited into your space, Jesus. So what do you want? Well, well, where are you staying? And can we come along? We want something real, something true. So tell us, have you got that? Jesus, are you willing to engage us on that level? If so, where are you staying? Will you let us get near enough to you to see what your life is truly like? They want extended time with Jesus in private. They want an all-access pass to his way of life. They're approaching him as a rabbi, as a teacher, as someone who kind of knows the secret to existence, someone who's worth emulating in every way. Because if John the Baptist, who they admire, will say, this is someone worth following, they're willing to give Jesus a chance, but they want to know, are they actually going to have access to go deep with him? And so they ask, where are you staying? And Jesus, I think, gives the best response that they could hope for. Jesus says, come and you will see. Come and you will see. Jesus extends an invitation for relationship. He sends an invitation to hospitality. He invites them to come and to hang out, to spend time in his space, to see how he lives and moves and breathes in the world. Jesus invites them to join him in their everyday life, 
right? To eat with him, to ask questions, to laugh, to chat, to walk in silence, to rest side by side. Jesus says to these would-be disciples, hey, you want all access, you can have that. Come, come and see for yourselves. Come and you will see. You will have access to me. Jesus extends hospitality. He opens his arms wide and says, come. And again, just like Jesus' question was something that was historical, but also for us, I feel like this invitation in the same way is something that, yes, Jesus extended to these particular people at a particular moment in history, but it's also something I think he continues to extend, right? An invitation to all who are interested, come and see what I'm like. Come and spend time with me. Come and eat with me and stay with me and live in my rhythms and see how I truly live. You can have total access, all that you want to see about me, it's open to you and it's available. And so Jesus, he invites these men to come, and that's exactly what they do in our text. John writes this, he says uh, in verse 39, so Jesus says, come, come and see. And so they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who, John, who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So just to retrace what's happening here, Jesus says, come and see. They come, they spend the entire day with him. And the text tells us that Andrew, after getting some quality time with Jesus, finds his brother Simon and says, we found him. We found the real deal, the Messiah, the one who everyone's talked about. This guy, this Jesus, who John said was something, he really is something. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the one who's going to make everything right. Now, to me, this is, this is quite surprising and astounding. And Andrew's reaction right here, I think, is the key or the heart of this morning's text. I think this helps us answer that question we asked earlier. How do we decide who will follow? Because here's what happened. Andrew spends time, quality time with Jesus. I would say time that gave Andrew space to be himself and time that gave Jesus space to be himself. And it's after time, time spent together, and after proximity, being close to each other in the same space, that Andrew runs to get his brother and says with such certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's after some time together and after being close to each other in proximity that Andrew goes to his own flesh and blood and says, dude, you've got to see this for yourself. Now, the reason I find this so astounding is that the standard formula, in my experience, for human relationship usually works the other way. Let me explain. Usually, more time plus more proximity equals more frustration. I think this is what tends to happen when people come in contact. Generally speaking, the more time you have next to someone and the closer you are with that person, the more you can tend to find yourself frustrated or disappointed because you can see flaws with new clarity, you can see defects with greater precision, um, and as if you need me to prove this to you, here's maybe some examples I thought of. Have you ever been on like a road trip with good friends? And it starts with like all the excitement in the world. And you're like, gosh, 14 hours together. I can't wait. You know, and the playlist is new. The snacks are fresh. We're ready to go. But man, what happens around hour 11 in that car, right? 
little factions break out. Can you believe that he said, you know, I can't believe that she made us stop again, whatever it might be, right? I mean, the factions break out after 14 hours in the same, you know, 25 square feet of space. All kind of the, the beauty fades, the kind of the joy is gone, and now it's just like, they are so on my nerves, I can't wait to get a little more space, right? Generally speaking, more time plus more proximity equals more frustration. I think this is even true in relationships. I mean, why do we even have the phrase honeymoon period, right? This is a phrase that kind of acknowledges the reality that, sure, early on, you know, this is great, we're living, you know, come on. But then at a certain point, you know, the, the lights come on, if you will, as you would metaphorically, it's like, holy cow, you know, quit doing that, stop biting your nails, stop doing whatever it is, right? And you, generally speaking, more time plus more proximity equals more frustration. Over time, the wonder, the wonder dissipates, the, the tensions start to flare, the excitement burns out. But that's not what happens here with Andrew. Instead, Andrew gets a front row seat to Jesus. He takes Jesus up on his hospitable offer, an after time with Jesus, an after proximity with Jesus. Andrew is more fascinated by Jesus, more captivated by Jesus, more convinced that Jesus is someone special. And so he goes and he grabs his brother and he says, you've got to see this. We found him, the Messiah, the Christ. Andrew finds himself overwhelmed with excitement about who Jesus is. And he's so overwhelmed, he's like, I just have to share this. I have to go grab my brother who means so much to me and bring him along in this journey. So you should know this action, sharing Jesus with others, this is something in the gospel that kind of typifies Andrew in John's gospel account. In fact, every time Andrew is mentioned in the gospel of John, he's bringing someone else to see Jesus. This is the first time, but there's many other times when Andrew just finds himself captivated by who Jesus is. Again, after more time and more proximity with him. I think Andrew, for many of us, could be a great example to Christ followers about how we should be excited about drawing others in. But Andrew... He tells not only his brothers about Jesus, but he brings them to Jesus. And what does Jesus do when they arrive? John tells us, right? So he says, Andrew, he, Andrew, uh, brought him to Jesus, brought his brother uh, Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, right? So this Andrew grabs his brother, he brings him along, and Jesus gives this brother a new name and a new identity. He makes them aware that he's got a plan to change them. He's got a trajectory that they're going to walk on in this plan. It's going to change them so much that a new name is required. And so once again, Jesus extends hospitality. He invites Peter into the fold as well, and he says, your time with me, it's going to be so transformative that it will require a new name. And for the rest of the passage that Shannon read to us, we see Jesus again and again extending hospitality. We see it in verse 43 uh, when Jesus goes to Galilee and invites Philip to follow him, right? Jesus is expanding the circle greater and greater. And then just like Andrew did, Philip, after spending more time with Jesus and having more proximity with Jesus, invites his brother Nathaniel to come and see Jesus. He says, we found the real deal. And Nathaniel, of course, isn't convinced at first. He says, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. But again, he's one that after time with Jesus in proximity, be it a brief time where Jesus can tell him exactly what occurred in this encounter that he had with his brother. He's like, oh my gosh, wow, you are the king of Israel, the one about who the prophets wrote. You are the son of God, right? Uh, Jesus doesn't stop and correct him, but he says, you're right. That's exactly who I am. So again, people with more time, more proximity, more access to Jesus are won over by Jesus's character and authenticity 
time and time again. Jesus keeps extending hospitality, and when people take him up on, their, on his offer, they are persuaded and convinced to a deeper level that he is someone special, that he is someone unique, that he's the son of God and a king worth following. So that's our big stretch of text this morning, but what does that mean to us? Right? How does that help us on December 31st, 2017? And more specifically, how does that shape our thinking about this morning's question, how should we decide who to follow? Well, in the time that remains, I'd like to highlight just two observations, two lessons that I think this text teaches um, that can help us assess this question, then maybe what that means for us as we head into a new year. So first, I think this text teaches us that when we're deciding who we should follow, a key value should be authenticity. Authenticity. I think this is what captivated Andrew. John the Baptist had told Andrew that Jesus was the Lamb of God, that he was someone special, that there was something unique about Jesus. And that was enough to get Andrew to trail behind Jesus. But Andrew didn't run to get his brother. Andrew didn't go all in until he'd spent a little more time with Jesus, until he saw that Jesus was in private moments who he claimed to be in public moments. Right? Andrew didn't go in until he could see that Jesus was authentic, that he practiced what he preached, that he could deliver on what he promised, that he, maybe to use a metaphor, that he took the medicine he was describing, right? that Jesus was through and through, true and true, who he said he was. I believe this text teaches us that we should get excited about following someone who was as good backstage as they claim to be on stage, right? We should get excited about following someone who proves themselves to be the real deal. And in this text, that's Jesus. Jesus is remarkably authentic with these first followers. He says and does and acts and responds to them in a way that proves to those who encounter him that he is who John says he is, that he is someone unique and special. Jesus is authentic. And that's the first thing that makes him and Andrew and Peter and then Philip and then Nathaniel's opinion, someone worth following. So I think that's the first thing we should look for when we're asking, well, how do I decide who I should follow? I think authenticity is key, right? And again, in one sense, you kind of knew this before you came this morning, right? We've all seen the pain that can result when a leader is inauthentic, when a leader either lies about their commitment to the product or the plan that they're sharing, or when a leader presents maybe one path to their followers but takes another path themselves. You know this, right? I mean, we want authentic leaders, and authentic leaders we know intuitively are people that are worth our commitment. So authenticity, I think that's the first thing this text says we should look for in a person to follow. But the second thing is this, um, authority. Authority. All of Jesus' early disciples, but I would say even Nathaniel in particular, they followed Jesus because they had this sense that he had some kind of authority, that he was someone who possessed the right to give direction, to make decisions, to outline a course of action that's worth sacrifice and commitment. Because let's be honest, I mean, anyone can have an opinion about something, and we can hear them out, and we should. That's a polite thing to do. But we all instinctively know that everyone with opinion doesn't necessarily have authority, right? Everyone can have an idea about something, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily have the right to give direction or to change course or to alter what's happening for a group of people. I mean, when I was thinking about this, the first thing that came to mind, I remembered uh, when I was a children's librarian, there were at least 30 opinions in the room about what we should do during Lego Club, right? So we get in the room, there are 30 distinct opinions about what we should do, but yet 
there was only one person who had the authority to decide what should happen in Lego Club because I was the oldest and the tallest and the one with the key to the Lego cabinet, right? I had in that sense, without ever having to tell it to the kids, it didn't have to be made explicit, but they got to say, hey, here's someone who has the right to decide what happens when we gather for Lego Club. In the same way, Jesus' first followers just have this sense, gosh, this is someone who has authority. Again, it's easiest to see in Nathaniel because Jesus is able to tell Nathaniel what was happening back under the fig tree, and Jesus is like, oh, that's small potatoes. But Nathaniel, Andrew, Philip, Peter, it's true for all of them. Peter allows himself to be renamed or even. They have this sense that Jesus has some kind of authority, that he has the right somehow to tell them, do this or don't do that. There's something in the way Jesus acts, something in his character, something in his disposition that reminds these first followers that, man, this guy who is so authentic also possesses this authority like a king. And this makes him worth following. And again, my hunch is that before you came here this morning, you would have had an idea, oh yeah, you want a leader with authority. I don't think I'm telling you anything new there, you know? It's like, yes, I want a leader who actually has the right to comment on something. That's why a lot of us, you know, will follow gurus that have maybe a PhD or something. We love to see degrees. That's one way we culturally perceive authority, right? Or we want to follow leaders that have experience or who have been there themselves, right? So those are cultural ways we assess authority. But both authenticity and authority is things to look for in someone to follow. I mean, that's, don't think I'm telling you anything new, maybe putting new language for it, but you already had that sense probably before you came in here. But here's the unique thing I want you to hear this morning. And here's the unique thing I think John wants us to hear this morning. And here's the question that I think we should turn over in our minds the rest of this afternoon as we think about how we want to live in the new year and how we want to start 2018. I want to ask this morning, who else has this unique combination of authority and authenticity that we see here in Jesus Christ. I mean, who else, can you think of anyone, has this unique combination of authority and authenticity that we see here in Jesus Christ? I think this is what John wants us to hear this morning. In other words, if authenticity and authority are what we should look for in a person to follow, if those are indeed key markers of who we should follow, as I think John's trying to prove to us here, but as I also think we all kind of intuitively get, it's like, sure, I want a leader who's authentic, and I want someone who has a bit of a sense of authority. If those are the marks that we should look for, does anyone else have both authenticity and authority to the same level or measure as Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you, as I've thought about that question this past week, I can't come up with anyone who matches Jesus Christ to the same measure in both those categories. Because most of the time to earn authenticity, humans sacrifice a bit of their authority, right? If they show who they truly are, it kind of diminishes the aura that's around them. And so the authority score diminishes as the authenticity score rises, right? This is what happens with human leaders. Or a lot of the times, human leaders to raise their authority score, they'll be less and less authentic and they'll withhold some unsavory details about who they are, but it makes them seem like they're better than who they are, and you're like, oh gosh, that's someone I would trust. But I can't think of any leader who, like Jesus, who the more authentic they get, you also realize the more authority they have. And that's the unique thing happening here at the beginning of John's gospel. And again, as we've said all along, if John's point in this gospel is uh, that you may believe, it's to prove that Jesus is someone worthy of our faith and worthy of our allegiance and worthy of being followed as a king. I think what John's trying to prove to us here this morning is that, there's, that in his mind, 
There's no one worthy of being followed more than Jesus Christ. There's no one else who has the level of authenticity and the level of authority that he has. And I think that's something worth considering again at the beginning of the year as we're thinking through, who am I going to follow into this new year? Because there are many choices. That is a question people are asking this time of year, and it's not saying that it's wrong to, you know, follow Shanti's fitness plan or to read, you know, whatever Oprah has published recently. I don't know, but I've seen her on all the talk shows a lot. But what it is to say is this, when it's choosing ultimately who to follow in the new year, or ultimately who to follow with our lives, or ultimately who's worthy of kind of sacrifice and commitment when it comes to discipleship. And we want someone that's high on both the authority and authenticity scale. Is there anyone who matches Jesus in both counts? I'm convinced there's not. I'm convinced that Jesus is the only one who has absolute authenticity and absolute authority. I'm convinced Jesus is the only one with nothing to hide. So he has absolute authenticity and the only one who made the whole world and so therefore has a right to rule over it. He has absolute authority. That's what makes Jesus unique. That's what John wants us to see. And that, friends, I think is the culmination of this Advent journey that you may believe. John wanted to inspire and stir faith in these first followers, and we as a church want to do that with us this season. So may we, as we go forward from this season where we've celebrated the peace and the joy and the love and the hope that comes with Advent, may we also have renewed faith in Jesus Christ, right? the only one with absolute authenticity and absolute authority. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do have so many options uh, this year as to who to follow. And for as much as I love New Year's because it feels like everything's fresh and there's so much choice, uh, I also want to make the wise choice. I only want to go in on someone who's worth following, Lord. I only want to put all my chips behind uh, the most sure bet that I can think of. And so, Lord, may you remind us this morning as we rediscover and re-explore this text of how you called your first followers, may you remind us that they saw something in you that was so appealing they were willing to leave everything else behind to follow you. And what they saw, Lord, was a unique, incomparable combination of authenticity and authority. You were absolutely who you said you were, totally transparent, and you had a unique level of authority as one who's king of the world, one who made it all. Lord, they were persuaded and they gave their lives to follow you. May you continue to persuade us in the ways that we need to be persuaded and renew our faith to follow you in this new year. We're asking for that this morning. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.